I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, and today I'm joined by Alexander Petri, a humorist as well as an opinion columnist for the Washington Post, and the youngest person to ever have her own column for the publication. Alexandra, as a fellow comedy aficionado, it is a privilege to speak to you today. Oh, it's terrific to be on. Hello. So you've previously said your goal as a humorist was to, quote, be weirder than everybody else and hope that no one stopped me. What sparked that ambition for you? (laughs) Well, I think at first I was like, maybe I should just write sort of a straightforward column since that seems to be what this job is. And then I kept not doing that and people kept not firing me. And then gradually, because I feel like, you know, there's also the whole sort of like, it's going to be so random. And I don't want to be like, I'm so random because that's very uh, vintage internet and not what I'm going for. But I was like, I think there's room on the internet, a very strange place for even somebody writing for a traditional publication like The Post to get to, you know, maybe write a column that's all in all caps for no clear reason. And then uh, people kept letting me. And the sort of weird, interesting thing of typing uh, for a living and hopefully also producing word, but definitely hitting the keys, is that you are online and online everyone's sort of brain first. So you get a lot of like fun, wacky content that you wouldn't in like your traditional print newspaper. So trying to sort of be like, can this flourish in both media? Like, is this an amphibious enough column? So that was something that was fun to experiment with. Yeah, so let's talk about your column. We live in a very hectic and sometimes outrageous news cycle. What is your approach to the news cycle when thinking about what to write and how to write it? Every day I'm just like, there's literally 800 things that I could possibly be writing about. So let me try to write about hopefully two of them, but maybe just one of them. And so I'll have like a list of things that I'm working on and I'll tell my editor in the morning, he'll be like, you know, what's what's up? What's coming down the pike from you? And I'll say, uh, I have like a thought about this and sometimes the thought will turn into nothing. And sometimes it will turn into a column that's like 1500 words long and wrong in some way that I completely need to rewrite. And sometimes it'll just be like, oh no, this this came out pretty much as I was anticipating it. And it's always fun to see which one it will be. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of like staring at the wall and drinking coffee in between those two things. Usually the problem is not like, there's nothing to complain about in the world or on the internet today, (laughs) the opposite is the problem. So yeah, you could have like a team of six or eight people doing this and uh, we would still not run out of stuff. And you write a lot about politics. In 2017, a piece of satire you wrote that criticized then President Donald Trump's budget was actually tagged by the White House as a piece of news. Even though it was a mistake, to what extent do you think satire like that has a place in mainstream political discourse? Well, I think I do try to think of it as like, I'm still writing a column, even though I'm using the tools of satire to make my points. So uh, like, if you see it on the page, you're not like, this is some totally new different thing. And obviously like outlets like the Onion Reductress are doing the thing where like, you can tell that they're making an argument. It just happens to be in the format of a satire column. And I think that that's what I'm doing. And so in this case, it was odd seeing the White House not understand the distinction but the point i was trying to make was that i didn't think the budget was a good budget and so uh they that that was in the format that i was doing yeah and your headline was that this was a i think it says something along the lines this is the great budget it'll never fail and that clearly caught the white house's attention no because i think part of it was that like president trump had this idea that once you're elected president 
all the newspapers are like under a contractual obligation to like you and like start saying nice things about you. And so he saw this headline and he's like, finally, it's happening. I mean, he <laughs> personally didn't see the headline, but I think, you know, some very low tier staffer saw it and had that same feeling of excitement and relief. And yeah, it was not that. <laughs> and besides politics, you do a lot of stuff outside of the post when it comes to pop culture. And what about pop culture do you find most fascinating to explore as a humorist? One of my favorite ways to come up with jokes in general and is just to think about the implications of things where like you'll see like the tip of an iceberg in a commercial or in like a movie or something and like all these assumptions that are made about a world like for a while there was this commercial about this chantix turkey that was like quitting smoking and i was obsessed with it i'm like what is going on in this turkey's life like because you would always see the turkey like wandering around he would have, have this beautiful home but it seemed like he was very lonely i, I became like riveted by like what's going on you know, in this turkey's existence, like, are there other turkeys in this world? Is he like a post-apocalyptic survival turkey? And so it, what started off was just like, haha, he's cold turkey, he's quitting, became like a mania for me. And I feel like that's, I, I love like pop culture things that invite you to sort of become way too obsessed with all the implications of them, which is like, I'm a big Star Wars nerd for the reason that like the world is so expansive and you'll meet like a guy uh, for like five seconds and you'll become consumed with him and be like, what's his deal, you know? Like, and Robot Chicken will be like, he was an architect. And you'll be like, yes, he could have been an architect. And so, yeah, I, I just love getting stuck down rabbit holes. As a huge Star Wars fan myself, when I told my friends I was interviewing you and I said she created emo Kylo Ren, they almost fell out of their chairs because that was the funniest thing I've ever seen on Twitter in a long time. What inspired emo Kylo Ren? I need to know because that... That might be your my favorite project of yours, of course, as a Star Wars fan. Oh, man. I So basically, I, I walk out of the movie and I'm like, this is what I think is going on. And I, I've seen this person before and he was at Hot Topic and I was there also. And so like all of the, you know, middle school years that I put in on like Live Journal, Hot Topic, really having a lot of emotions. I'm like, I, I see what this this guy is doing. And I'd like to uh, express it on the internet, please. And so he was a lot of fun. It's funny, I always refer to him as like him as though like he's this entity outside of myself as opposed to a thing that I was writing. But I'm just like, this, it's a character. And the fun, like in the movies, he kept becoming sort of, it was like, oh no, I, I wasn't like way out on a limb. This was actually, it seems like they, they, they knew that they were doing this, uh, which was exciting. But uh now the, the account I think is like selling shoes because the password got confused. Um, and anyway, it, it's doing something. He's been like, want a deal on sneakers? And I'm like, I don't know how to log in again. Um, but so if it's trying to sell you sneakers now, I apologize. But yeah, he, he was a lot of fun to live with and get all my like extremely like, here's what I think it would be like to go on a road trip with Lando Calrissian jokes <laughs> system. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head, especially with the helmet scene in The Force Awakens. It just kind of really echoed that, you know, he's emo. He's just trying to follow Anakin and he's oh, totally tuned out to everything else besides following that aesthetic. I think you captured it really well. And that was something me and my friends, when we were in middle school, early high school, were just so gravitated towards it. In its heyday, that account was just everything we looked at. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that, that makes me uh, I'm, I'm really delighted. 
it also it is making me think about the passage of time which is terrifying and something like yeah oh my gosh that was in the past a number of years when it, it would be plausible that you could be in middle or high school oh my goodness i've been alive on this planet for a while um, <laughs> Yeah, time flies. And especially nowadays, it feels like time is just a social construct. But back to you as a humorist and your work, what advice would you give to the average American to help them, you know, make sense of the culture and the politics and the world we live in nowadays? Oh, boy, I think I'm not sure there is sense to be made of it. I think <laughs> you should just enjoy it. It's because there, there's a lot to be enjoyed in it. And then there's a lot to be indignant about in it. And if you can get some laughs in while you're in between bouts of being indignant that I think that helps you stay comparatively sane. So I'd recommend doing that. Uh, but yeah, no, if, if I were like, yes, every, everything does make sense. There is a larger plan and it's all falling together. I think I would be misleading you. So in that sense, is humor your filter for looking at the world or does it play a different role? I think it's my filter just in general as a human being, uh, because I think if you're able to laugh at something, whether it's like a situation you find yourself in or something that's going on in the news, if you're able to sort of like coax humor out of it, it does give you a little more power over the situation or like feel like you have some. Cause like, you know, if you're at the dentist or something, yeah, where, where are you going with this speech, right? I have no idea. <laughs> Don't you love starting a sentence and you're like, well, <laughs> some people would have prepared the end of that sentence in advance and I have not done that. And yeah, no, so, but you're like, I'm experiencing pain or discomfort, but then you think of a good joke and you're like, well, but at least I've gotten a joke out of this. I feel like often that's what humor is for me. It's like, well, I was able to have a small triumph in this situation because uh, despite the root canal or metaphorical root canal, I was able to coax uh, a pun into being that wasn't there before. And that's something. How can we find your stuff online, both for the posts or whatever else you're working on, if you want to plug any of your recent projects? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a website that I have not updated since before the pandemic, which Ooh. is like, there's a live event you can go to in March of 2020. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, there's not, for several reasons. Um, <laughs> not only because we are now in the future, but also because March of 2020 was a bad time to have a live event. Um, but yeah, no, I have a... this. this if you want to see these artifacts of the past, I have a website that's just uh, alexandrapetri.com or on the post I'm writing in theory every day and in practice uh, like th three times a week or so. And that's just, uh, just go to the Washington Post and I'm in the opinion section there. Uh, I I'm gonna give you like a long URL and that's like radio catnip. People are like, I just want somebody to read a long URL into into the radio i will say for researching you all i had to do was go to the washington post look at the editorial writers and i found your name so yeah. that's that's the way to go and once again that was alexandra petri humorous and opinion columnist for the washington post the youngest person to ever have her own column for the publication alexandra it was a pleasure oh thanks for having me